Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 188, Artificial Gravity. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Name a space movie, almost any of them. When you see them flying through space, a lot of times they're standing or sitting in the cockpit or bridge, not floating. There's a mention of an artificial gravity generator that helps them to accomplish this phenomenon. The idea of using artificial gravity within a spacecraft is an intriguing one. Many say it would be a good way to keep astronauts healthy on long trips, preventing bone and muscle loss for the 18 or so months it would take in weightlessness to travel to and from Mars. The question is, do we need artificial gravity for a trip to Mars? The truth is, we don't know, but we're researching this very idea to understand it better. On this episode, we're going to explore the effects of artificial gravity on the human body. Our guest today is one of the leading minds for understanding this concept, Dr. Bill Pulaski, former director of the Human Research Program at NASA. He spent much of his career exploring the effects of artificial gravity through Earth-based studies and has published several research papers on the topic. So let's get right into it. Artificial Gravity with Dr. Bill Pulaski. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit array. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Dr. Bill Pulaski, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is always a lot of fun to do. And a very interesting topic, too, right? Artificial gravity in terms of uh, what people, you know, generally ask questions about when they think about human spaceflight. Artificial gravity is usually one of those questions. Everybody thinks there's a room that you can just kind of flip a switch. Mm -hmm. A little more complicated than that. So I'm glad that we're diving into this with you today. Yep. Uh, I wanted to start, though, to understand artificial gravity and understand um, mainly what we're going to be talking about today is the effects of artificial gravity on the human body. Um, I want to set some context for what it takes for a person to dive into this field, starting with a little bit of your background. Um, it says you had a lot of training in mechanical and biomedical engineering. That's correct. Yeah, I had an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, and then I went to graduate school, got a master's degree and PhD in biomedical engineering, which at that time was, uh, and at that institution, was mostly electrical and systems engineering uh, coupled with systems physiology. So that was kind of the, uh, the starting point uh, for what I did. Um, and then after that, I, uh, I, I spent some time working in a, uh, in a trauma research center. Um, and uh, we were doing uh, uh, multi-system studies on people who had multiple trauma. Uh, and what that means is people who are in bad accidents. Mm. We were tr trying to understand a sequence of organ system failures uh, after, after big accidents like that over a period of time. Uh, so that was my first introduction to looking at all the systems of the body at the same time. Um, and if you're going to do artificial gravity research, you need to look at all the organs that are affected and not just uh, not just some of them. Oh, interesting. So that provided a nice base for you to understand artificial yeah, gravity. Yeah, a, a good base. And, and for all the stuff we do in, in, in human research program today, but also uh, in, in space physiology in general, because space affects a lot, a lot of things at the same time. Uh, and uh, artificial gravity would try to undo some of those effects all at the same time. And so you can't just look at one organ, you have to look at all the organs. So uh, what point of your career did you, you, you said you were working with uh, critical care medicine, you were working on all the understanding of, of different organs within the human body. At what point did maybe your curiosity spark for space physiology? 
Well, I was uh, I was working at Boston University as a as a, a junior faculty member, had a research appointment at MIT in fluid mechanics, and was doing pulmonary gas exchange and cardiovascular uh, uh, physiology work. Uh, and one of my students came back um, from uh, being away after he had graduated with a master's degree and came back and he said, you know, you ought to look at NASA. Did you ever think about working at NASA? And I kind of looked at him and said, no, I never really did. And he said, well, they're, they're looking for people like you at NASA, so maybe you'd be interested in sending a resume down. So I did. And I got hired here in the neurosciences laboratory. And I worked uh, for probably six or seven years on a, uh, on a, on a very robust, uh, one of the largest experiments that have ever been done before, the MVI experiments, microgravity vestibular investigations. And in that, my job was to design and, and build a rotating chair to test the vestibular system in space. So we had a rotating device uh, in space and to uh, be able to understand the effects of space flight on the inner ear and how, you, how your balance system works. And during that time, uh, Mil Reschke, who was the head of the, the laboratory, still is, uh, became sort of a new mentor for me. And he taught me a lot about neurosciences and about, um, and about space physiology. Uh, and we flew the experiment successfully on IML-1 and STS-42. So it was in 1991 or 92. It was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and soon after that, um, I was asked to become a civil servant. Um, and when I did, I said, sure, I'll be happy to do that and to join the, the NeuroLab. Um, and about uh, three weeks after I joined the civil service, I got a call from headquarters who said, uh, you know, we need an expert in artificial gravity, and you're it. Learn about artificial gravity. And <laughs> that, was, that, 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 was, that was my introduction. Wow. So, so a lot of that research, you were just understanding what happens to the human body that you were doing prior to this. You were just understanding what happens to the human body. Now you have to add this, um, this element of artificial gravity, I guess. Um, help, let's start there. Help us explain that. What is, if I had to say, you know, what is artificial gravity? What are those things that we are concerned about, focused on, interested in, uh, when it comes to introducing this field, artificial gravity, to human spaceflight? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that's obvious about going into space uh, is that there's generally no gravity, or what we call microgravity. It's very low. Uh, and for long periods of time, um, people are exposed to this low gravity state. And the question is, well, we're used to gravity, what happens to the body um, if, uh, if you don't have gravity? And indeed, this problem has been thought about for a very long time. The first person to think about artificial gravity to offset what effects might happen is a guy called Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, um, mm -hmm. who's considered the father of the Russian space program. But he, he thought about the problems of people in space for a long time, and he actually designed the first or, or had a concept for the first rotating um, vehicle. Um, there have been others since then, but the, the whole concept is that we can use centrifugal force um, uh, instead of gravity. Um, and Einstein showed long ago that there, his equivalence theorem so, says that gravity and acceleration are identical, mm -hmm. right? So by using acceleration, centripetal acceleration or centrifugal force, um, then we can generate something that's a gravity equivalent, and perhaps if we could spin the whole vehicle, uh, that you know we could pre at the at the right rate that we could provide a gravity equivalent, and people would be protected, and we wouldn't have any ad adaptation to that that environment. Hmm. So, okay, so it sounds like there there is already some history with with adding artificial gravity as a consideration for human spaceflight. Um, we have you know a lot of research in microgravity now. We have a. Um, a decent understanding of what happens to the human body, still investigating, of course. Um, but with this, with this in mind, you know, thinking just that there has been this concept for 
concepts for generating an artificial gravity field. Um, let's start with what is the case for introducing artificial gravity to human spaceflight? Why would we do it? Well, it's, it's a very interesting question. It's one that's been around since Tsiolkovsky, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the thought is that people wouldn't do very well in microgravity without gravity. Um, and you know, the, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, um, we've had one G, one Earth gravity on this planet for the entire epoch of evolution of, of all animal life on Earth and plant life. And we have ourselves um, um, taken advantage of all the adaptations that other animals have had along the way to be able to offset gravity. So we have um, a cardiovascular system that can pump blood against a, 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 a G load um, and against a hydrostatic load, so from your heart all the way down to your feet, um, mm -hmm. and be able to per perfuse your muscles uh, and, and, and nerves and, and lower limbs and your bones, and also from your heart to your head at the same time where there's another um, uh, load. Uh, we have muscles that help us move around uh, in, this, in, in this environment. We have um, bones that provide the structure, the, the mechanical structure to allow us to stand up and, and lie down. And then we have a nervous system that can sense gravity and know the orientation of gravity and help us to, to decide which muscles to turn on at which time so that we can take the, the, the kinds of movements that we want to take. So everybody recognized that long ago, mm -hmm. um, and they thought, well, without gravity, all those things could go kaput, and we don't know what's going to happen the, to the person. So uh, even uh, at, the, at, the, at the dawn of the space, uh, space age, Werner von, von Braun, um, who was building the rockets to send people in space, started thinking about how are we going to create artificial gravity. And so he had, uh, he had a, uh, a gravity wheel uh, that was a, a very big spinning thing. And if you remember the movie uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, in the early part of that movie, there was a space hotel uh, that people were, were, and it was huge. It was a kilometer across. Very um, massive, Right, yes. and, and people you know, went to space and they, and they lived in this hotel and they could walk around and do the things that they want. Um, there are some issues with that, technical issues, but um, um, other than the cost, it seemed like the, the right way to go. So we really thought before we started sending humans in space that we would probably need artificial gravity. Um, and there was a whole bunch of scientists that br were brought together in the 50s to think about how we would do it, but the urgency of trying to get people in space with the space race, you know, pushed us into capsules and, go and going into space, said, hey, wait a second, people can live for this long, so let's forget about artificial gravity for a while until <laughs> we have to go for a long time. And then, you know, at the end of the 60s, when we were going to start doing um, Skylab and other longer duration uh, uh, type, type missions, they brought the community together again. Oh, you know, we didn't need it for, for Mercury uh, or even for Apollo, but surely we're going to need it when, uh, when we have longer missions. And once again, there was no funding for it, and we went and did the experiments. Uh, we went and sent people, and we didn't need it so we could go, you know, for a longer period of time. And the Russians were doing it on Salyut station and then on, on their Mir station. We started doing it on the shuttle, and we kept thinking each time that we take the next step deeper into space, we're going to need artificial gravity. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact is that it's perceived to be very expen expensive to build um, and to have a, a, a rotating vehicle. Uh, and so um, we've developed other countermeasures um, for anti-gravity systems, uh, what we call anti-gravity systems, and mostly it's exercise. It's what we do on, on the ground. So if you do resistive exercise and aerobic exercise, you can maintain the bones, the muscles, and the cardiovascular system um, through 
you know, the space station era that we're in now pretty well through uh, six-month missions and even in the, the, the few subjects that we've done up until one year, uh, we're, we're able to protect it with just, with just, uh, with just um, uh, exercise. So the question becomes, again, now we're going to go to Mars, so let's get the community together. And that was part of the call for me uh, in the 90s was, hey, pretty soon we're going we're to go to station, we're going to go to Mars. And there was a, a, a big challenge there about whether we're going to go to Mars first or build a station, and the station went out. Um, but, you know, the, the whole idea was get the community together and uh, start thinking about what we would need to do and how we would need to do it. Um, during, those, during that period, and I ran two international artificial gravity workshops, one in 1999, um, which was the, um, uh, the first one that they asked me to do to try and put together a, a, a global plan for how we would, uh, how we would do these studies um, and what studies needed to be done. Uh, and then the second one that came about um, in the early teens, um, and, and again, I was away from NASA and working at the University of Houston, and I got a call from the person who was in my current job um, saying, hey, there's this new thing that's come up, this thing called SANS, which is a, a visual problem that, we, that seems to be related to fluid shifts to the head um, because gravity's not pulling blood down to the, to the feet, uh, and it's causing some problems in, uh, in astronauts. Would you think about doing artificial gravity again? This might be a, a real no-kidding reason for having artificial gravity. So um, we pulled together another uh, one of these meetings and talked about what to do. Uh, and since 99, um, there have been a lot of studies on the ground um, for how to do artificial gravity. Uh, not really very many in space for reasons that we'll get into, I think, later in the talk. Yeah. Um, I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into understanding. I, I think you, get a, you gave a great overview of I think why gravity is good for the human body. Mm -hmm. You know, we yep. have a lot of understanding on the different systems and, and how they're affected by a 1G environment because that's what we're in right now. That's mm -hmm. how we're recording this podcast is in 1G. Um, you talked about uh, potential vision problems. Uh, you talked about uh, mitigating some of the effects of space flight through exercise on the International Space Station. Um, uh, uh, let's explore a deeper overview of exactly what's happening to the human body in microgravity and... Uh, again, readdressing this case um, because of these things are happening to humans in microgravity, the reason why artificial gravity is, is something we want to um, research and understand. So in space, um, there are a number of things that we know are affected by the loss of gravity or by microgravity. Uh, and those happen with those, those systems that we know are affected by gravity. So we lose bone mass, bone mineral density. We lose muscle mass. Um, we lose some of our cardiovascular function, but it's, it's actually hard to measure until people come back to Earth, and then we start seeing um, that, there's, that there's a change there. And then we lose orientation, spatial orientation, and our ability to, to walk and move around. Um, we ambulate in a different way uh, in space. And the thought is, again, that, um, that by using artificial gravity, we could offset, offset all, all those effects hmm. um, you know, by having some kind of a G level, maybe one G, maybe less. We don't know exactly what the right G level is. Um, and maybe a rotating sp station, and maybe not, maybe part of a station rotating, or maybe just rotating the people inside the station for part of the day. Realize that, you know, the gravity effect is predominantly when we're upright with respect to the Earth. 
Um, so it's when you're standing up or sitting, uh, as you and I are right now, um, and about a third of the day, uh, most people are lying flat, and so they're not getting those same kinds of effects of gravity uh, on Earth. So maybe you only need to, uh, to, to provide stimulus for two-thirds of the time, uh, hmm. which is what we get on Earth. Uh, and if you're a couch potato, a lot less than that, right? So, um, you know, so the, the question becomes um, how much gravity and for how long a period of time. Um, Interesting. Okay, so, so really, yeah, a, a, a summary of what we've, we've just talked about is um, gravity is good. And by introducing gravity to spaceflight, a lot of these things that we need countermeasures for, such as you talked about bone loss, muscle loss, right now that mitigation strategy, that, that countermeasure is, is exercise, combination mm -hmm. of, of aerobic and resistive. That countermeasure um, perhaps needs to be replaced or reduced uh, with the introduction of artificial gravity because gravity then becomes the countermeasure. Is that sort of, am I interpreting that right? It, yes, it could be that that gravity could become the countermeasure, but most of our crew members and most active individuals exercise anyway. So they're uh -huh. gonna exercise part of the time. Now maybe they don't have to exercise as much in space uh, if, they have, if they have gravity too. But in order to maintain fitness and, and uh, aerobic fitness and, and, and muscular strength uh, at their pre-flight levels, they're probably still gonna have to do exercise. It won't be gravity alone, but gravity could help. Okay. Now let's switch gears for just a second. And uh, we've talked about um, some of the ways that gravity is good um, and, and the introduction in the case for having artificial gravity for deep space missions. You've already alluded to some of the complications of designing a system. We've talked, you, you mentioned and, and previewed the idea of a very large structure. I remember 2001, A Space mm -hmm. Odyssey. That hotel was massive. Yep. I remember those long, those big hallways, right? They were nice and wide. I was mm -hmm. like, wow, that would, be, that would be nice for a spacecraft. Um, so considering some of those engineering challenges, if this is something uh, that was very important to mitigate some of the things that you were talking about, some of the things that are happening to the human body, what are some of those challenges for designing that system? So yeah, designing the system is really the biggest challenge and, and what mm -hmm. the system needs to look like. We know that we need gravity. Um, well, we know that people need gravity. Um, and it's really for when they come back to, the, to Earth or to a different environment. Because our system, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. Our systems are plastic. And, and, and what that means is that they adapt and they adapt to the loading that they're given. And that's, and that's, a, and that's a feature, not a bug. So when you, go to, when you go to zero G and you spend a lot of time in zero G, you become a zero G individual and you don't need the bone strength or the muscle strength or the cardiovascular uh, activities and you need a different kind of, of, of guidance system, inertial guidance system. And all these systems adapt to make that perfect. The real problem is when you come back to earth or when you go back to another G environment and all of a sudden you need the old systems and you don't have them. So when we talk about it being a problem, it's not really a problem for the system. It means we have a, a really, really, really robust system, set of systems in our body uh, to adapt to almost anything. Uh, but when you, if you expect to be able to operate normally when you come back to Earth uh, or when you go to a planet, then you have to be able to protect those things. That makes so much sense because I think um, it's been described to me that the human body is just the ultimate efficiency machine, right? So if you're in the microgravity environment, as you're saying, your your body recognizes that it's it needs to turn off you know that that sense of of motion uh, i think it's called the intravestibular system if i'm not mistaken the neurovestibular system that yes. neurovestibular system mm -hmm. yeah it shuts that off so uh, you know up and down uh, it, it, it's adjusting to there mm -hmm. is no up and down there's just microgravity yeah. bone and muscles you don't need that as much so yeah as you were saying i mean it's it's being efficient for the zero exactly. gravity environment yep. 
not very efficient for when right. you land again. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, the, the most obvious way to provide gravity is to rotate the vehicle. And that's what the, you know, that's what the, the big mines a century ago and a half a century ago thought about. Um, but that's very costly. And so the engineers uh, have been thinking about other ways to do it. And, and indeed, there were two designs that were commissioned um, at NASA that I'm aware of um, back in the aughts in around 2005, plus or minus a little bit. One um, out of JSC by a guy named Kent Houston, and he designed uh, a very uh, interesting vehicle that was a very long stick-like vehicle, about 100 meters uh, across with a, a, a nuclear reactor on one end and a crew compartment on the other end um, that would spin um, and, 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 and bring people all the way to uh, 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 to, to Mars and back. Um, and at about the same time, another guy called Stan Borowski at Glenn Research Center was working on nuclear thermal, thermal rockets, and he designed one that could uh, itself open up and turn into a like a baton, I think that that, that Houston calls it, his a baton, um, and, uh, and, and be able to spin with the crew on one end and the power system, the propulsion system on the other end. Hmm. And, and those things are, were, were feasible in terms of mass power, volume. Um, they had some issues that the engineering community didn't like. Um, the, uh, the maintenance of those things was, uh, was really challenging, especially external maintenance if you had to do an EVA. Um, there were some questions about if you had to stop the rotation to do an EVA uh, and then turn it back on. Uh, there were issues with guidance, navigation, and control um, because of a spinning target uh, on you know someplace uh, out there. And there were some other engineering uh, challenges that made it so that it probably wasn't the, the highest priority um, way to go about doing things. A second approach is to rotate part of the vehicle. Um, and that's the, in, in, in fiction, if you, if you remember 2001, A Space Odyssey, the deep space vehicle, I think it was called Discovery, uh, had a part of it that was, uh, that rotated, but the rest of it was stationary. So you may recall the scene where the crew member comes down a hallway and then goes through a hatch and, and climbs down a ladder and yes. gets to the thing. Well, remember, I think I told you that, um, that omega squared R is the, uh, is the equation, a angular velocity squared times the radius is the equation for, uh, for centrifugal force. Um, and so when the person is uh, at the center of rotation, the, the, the R is zero, so the, the gravitational loading is zero. And the farther you get away, the higher the loading is. So as you're climbing down a ladder, of course, you're getting farther away, and every step your body gets heavier and, and, and becomes a, a bigger challenge for your muscles. You know, but they were living and working and exercising in this environment that was spinning uh, for eight or 10 hours a day and then going, or maybe 12 hours a day and then going back to the, to, to, to the rest of the vehicle for the, the rest of the time. So it was intermittent um, and it was rotating part of the vehicle. Um, if you remember the Martian a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. um, the Ridley Scott movie um, with Matt Damon, uh, they had a wonderful vehicle, Hermes vehicle, which also had a very big rotating section that they, that they spent a lot of time exercising and living in. Um, that would be perfect um, to go in and out of there and go in, in and out of zero G and, 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 and back and forth. Each of those things though, uh, the same, oh, and then there was another design that was developed um, at NASA, I think at JSC, 
um, by a couple of uh, engineers. Uh, it was called the Nautilus system. And the Nautilus uh, had a stationary part and a rotating uh, tube uh, that um, was connected to the, uh, to, the, to the station. It never got built, but it was another concept for how you might do that. Um, so, you know, part of rotating the, uh, the, the vehicle, or the part of the vehicle, um, saves some of the mass power volume, um, but also has some of the same complexities that rotating the entire vehicle. And actually, there's more moving parts, so it has adds some additional per, uh, um, uh, uh, complexity as well. So the engineers, again, are still not that keen on that. Uh, so finally, um, we come down to a solution, which is what we've had to do on the ground uh, for all of our ground-based studies, and that is to, to rotate the people within the vehicle. Um, and that is to have a very short radius centrifuge um, where you can put a person on the centrifuge for a period of time, uh, maybe an hour or two a day, maybe more. Um, and that's part of what our goal is in most of the ground-based studies is to figure out what's that prescription, what's the right prescription to be able to protect all these systems. Um, you may couple uh, this short radius centrifuge within the vehicle uh, to exercise. Maybe you do exercise and rotation at the same time. Um, maybe you just do a rotation and do your exercise separately. So there are lots of different paradigms, but fitting it inside the vehicle is much easier um, and, and much better. Uh, but it introduces some other problems. If you remember the omega squared R uh, uh, equation that I brought up, now you have uh, a vehicle that might have a radius of two meters, uh, you have a person who's two meters, so at their feet is one G and at their head is zero G, so across the body there are different G levels all the way up and down the body. Um, I don't think that's such a bad idea uh, after after having done studies uh, uh, in bed-rested individuals on Earth. I think that's, I think that's feasible. I think that, that people can deal with that. Um, the other uh, issue with the mainly the rotating vehicle, but also in part with the rotating segment of a vehicle, uh, and it's one that the astronauts brought up at the last meeting that we have, is that you lose the third dimension of the vehicle. Uh, so astronauts are used to being able to use the entire room and to be able to get any place that they want in the room, up and down, uh, back and forth, and if you start moving the room around and it has a floor that it pulls you down to, then getting to the, to the ceiling is harder. Um, so that's a, another downside to the, to the rotating vehicle and the rotating parts of the vehicle um, uh, from an astronaut perspective. Uh, yeah, fewer things, because um, right now, uh, yeah, they have a bunch of racks on the International Space Station. They have racks on the floor, on both of the quote-unquote walls, and on the ceiling, and they have access to all of them, and they can adjust their orientation as necessary to best work with them. I remember one astronaut, I forget who it was, it might have actually been Mike Hopkins, he was telling a story of working on a rack, and he just like, he could not get to this one part, and uh, he called to the ground saying he was having trouble with, with his reach, and they said, just flip upside down. Because he had run, he had run this maintenance, this particular maintenance task, so many times on the ground in that particular orientation, it didn't even occur to him. Oh yeah, I can turn upside down, and you're right. That's mm -hmm. one area you'll lose. You'll lose this access to something you can't reach because you're exposed to gravity. Um, I guess also from an engineering perspective, you could say that you can lose uh, having that system exist on that one side, knowing that an astronaut may have some difficulty accessing it. Um, limiting that access might be a challenge too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of different designs that we've just went over. It's, it's actually interesting. It's not, it's not a single case sort of thing. There's a, there's no. a lot of ideas, um, um, being thrown out here. 
I think what's uh, what I love have, having um, you here to describe, Bill, is that y you've already alluded to these these bed rest studies. Um, if you're thinking about what does happen to the human body in artificial gravity, uh, these studies are are um, are some of the ones that we've been conducting at NASA to understand just that: what happens to a human body in an artificial gravity environment. Can you talk about some of these studies, these Earth-based studies uh, that you've conducted? Sure. So. Um after the 1999 uh, workshop, uh, we decided as an international community that a number of studies should be done. We put together a, a plan for what studies should be done. And it starts with deconditioning subjects on the ground like they're deconditioned in space due to lack of gravity. And the model for that is head down tilt bed rest. So we put somebody in bed for, in general, um, somewhere between 30 and 60 days, um, and it's strict head down tilt bed rest. They can't pull their heads up, they can't move, they can't get out of their bed, they go to the bathroom in the bed, they eat in the bed, they do all their playing and everything in the bed. Um, so they, they're, by, by being tilted down, um, all, the, all the fluid from the lower extremity is moving to the upper extremities and they're not exercising their bones and muscles. Uh, and so it's, it's, a good, it's, it's been a good model. So we started with that and we have a lot of data on bed rest studies that have been done around the world since the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and we said, okay, that's the control uh, condition. And so now let's try doing bed rest and starting to use short radius centrifuge. And so look at the prescription. Um, and the first one that we did was, was one hour per day. Um, and the G level um, was, it was about a two and a half, center, a two and a half meter centrifuge. Uh, and the G level was, was two and a half G at the feet um, and one G at the heart. Um, and uh, because of this G gradient that I talked about mm -hmm. before. Um, and at the head was a, a little less than 1G, about 0.6G or something like that. So we're stimulating all the systems, but they were being stimulated all at, at different levels. And in order to understand this, we had um, investigators from every physiological system that might be affected and indirectly. So if, the, if you have some changes in the, uh, in the bone and you put more calcium in the blood, then there might be some other ch ch uh, problems in the renal system, in the, in, in the, in the system that's, that's clearing calcium from the, uh, uh, or maybe renal stones would start to form. So we had people, we had 27 different experts uh, in different areas of the, of the body, including psychological um, uh, folks who were trying to look at the psycho psychology of being spun each day and, and what it felt like and <laughs> sure. how to keep from being bored and, and that sort of thing. And we had, um, we actually had a, a plan for studies in the U.S., Russia, and Germany, uh, a three set of, of group study. Uh, and we ran the pilot study with everybody's uh, approval of the measures that we would make. And we made standard measures so that everybody could compare their data. And right after, just about the end of our study, ESAS came along and the artificial gravity project got canceled. Oh, no. So um, turns out that ESA was interested. ESA picked up the ball, and they ran some other studies. They called BRAG, bio, you know, bed rest and artificial gravity. Ours was called AG and bed rest. Um, and and they, they followed through with a similar set of things, trying to flesh out the, uh, the space of knowledge for how long and what G levels and what, whether you have exercise or not. So they, they ran a, a few studies that, that contributed to this knowledge base that we're, that we're developing uh, on Earth. And then uh, in recent years, um, we, we, we financed through H HRP a set of studies in a new facility in Germany that was joint with, with the ESA group, um, and we called it AG Bed Rest. And this is now starting to look at 
AG as a countermeasure uh, specifically for the the uh, the sands issue that the 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 the, the shifting of fluids to the uh, to the head. We completed that about two years ago, and we have another set of these coming forward um, starting next year in in Germany. Again, the the uh, Europeans are going off to Toulouse, where there's another uh, capability for that, and Slovenia, where there's a, a third capability, and uh, doing the same sort of thing. So, the the worldwide community is, when 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 possible, kind of filling out this entire. Uh, uh, set of what sorts of things work and what sorts of things don't work and what sorts of side effects might you have um, uh, for these systems. And that's pretty much where we've been for the past two decades is trying to put all those together. It's still not clear that we need, need to do it, but um, we want to do it. Now, we did try to fly uh, a centrifuge on station um, around 2007, 2009 or 2010. Uh, and again, it was the same international community, and we put together a, uh, an international proposal to do it on station. And it turns out, uh, after a lot of hemming and hawing, and it was the U.S. was going to provide the uh, um, the crew and the, and, the, and the integration, the Japanese were going to fly it, and the uh, and the Europeans were going to pay for the uh, for the device and have it built um, and, and 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 flight uh, certified. Uh, it turns out that the station really isn't designed for that much vibration. Uh, mm -hmm. So instead of just having a person laying there, we were going to have a person with a with a cycle ergometer that was spin and do the and do the ergometer, and oh. that much vibration was bad for the station. And it was de decided that you would have a, have to have a very expensive. Uh, vibration isolation system um, that the that the Europeans weren't willing to pay for um, to uh, to be able to do it so we've kind of lost the possibility of doing human centrifuge work on station at this time we're still looking at the possibility as we start looking at commercial carriers um, there's at least one commercial carrier that actually designed in a, a short radius centrifuge to the design um, and so you know they're, they are not ready to fly that yet, but if there's a need, then we might be able to do that and back away from the station. The station's vibration isolation uh, would still make it be, you know, something that's in low Earth orbit, but a little bit separated from the station. So we could have crews go over to it and, and, and do their work or something like that. So that's another concept for doing human studies in low Earth orbit. And we really need to... To, to use the station or one of the commercial providers to be able to validate everything we've learned on Earth because it's going to be different in space. We know it'll be different in space, and we can we can get a prescription um, on Earth using the techniques that I talked about. But um, until we validate it in space, we don't won't know that it's really something. You you won't, you won't want to go to Mars with that system until you validate it in space. Absolutely, and low Earth orbit would be a good definitely a good place to do Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yep. You, you mentioned a few, um, when, when you talked about a community, an international community, it, it is pretty telling on, on how widespread the curiosity is in this particular field. Um, I wanted to explore a little bit deeper. You talked about all the different experts, uh, I think you said like 27 different fields, including psychological. Um, what are some of those other fields? What, is, what are some of the curiosities that, uh, that are bringing together this community um, that we want to find out what happens to the human body in artificial gravity? Well, we have, you know, 
neurological experts, um, ah. both neurological of the brain, but also the stimulation of the muscles uh, and uh, and and the gut. You know, and so we had 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 those folks. We had muscle experts, um, and some are strength muscle strength uh, and endurance experts, but others are are muscle physiology and, and how are muscles made up and and do we change the kinds of fiber types in the muscles and 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 those sorts of questions. Cardiovascular. Um, some are interested in the vascular system and how the nervous system interacts with the vascular system. Others are interested in the heart itself. If you're not pumping hard, will you start losing heart muscle? Will the heart begin to atrophy uh, in, in the uh, physiologic terms? Um, so yeah, and we had renal experts. I don't think we had any liver experts per se, but we had microbiology folks. I mean, we had basically every kind of expert, and in some, in some we were two or three deep. That's why we how we got to 27. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I mean, it's, it's just it's fascinating to me just how how widespread you know, and, and everybody's getting together and, and pulling their own expertise and, and looking at their own expertise on, on this one this one item, artificial gravity. I find it absolutely fascinating. You also talked about. Uh, a control, you know, you, you talked about this uh, having your head tilted down in, in the uh, in the bed, and there was this control group, and then there were some other items that you were sort of isolating. Uh, the introduction of artificial gravity, uh, I believe, was was there an introduction um, with or without exercise? Was there something with or without uh, lower body negative pressure? Um, what are some of those things that you're introducing beyond the control group of, of tilting down? Right, so you know the the control group, and and we do those in every experiment. Now um, we use a control group that has no exposure to anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, another way of doing artificial gravity, which I didn't mention, um, is is using lower body negative pressure. Okay, and and this simulates only part of gravity's effects. It simulates the uh, um, the effects of bringing fluid to the lower extremities. Um, so you have this you're in a big vacuum chamber basically, and it, and it pulls fluid down. If you design it in the right way, it also um, uh, takes advantage of the of, of 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 the loading to load the bottoms of your feet, and the bottoms of your feet are incredibly important for understanding balance. And you may know that right after flight, crew members have a lot of disorientation, but they have trouble walking, ambulating, and it's coordination. But it's also not knowing how to interpret the sensors from the bottoms of their feet. They're very important for you to be able to uh, uh, to stand up. Um, and so, um, so LBMP will, will will stimulate the the bottoms of the feet. It will stimulate you to have to stand against this load. So some of the musculature in the lower extremities, presumably the the, the bones in the lower extremities, and then the cardiovascular system overall. And that requires no spinning at all. It's just a it's just a uh, 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 it's just a, a vacuum system that you that you get yourself into vacuum pants yeah and so and and so we do the same thing you know the, the what we did with agbriza was was ag and bed rest but also we had an, an arm of that study that um, that included lbnp instead of ag got it um, so it's, it's it's looking at you know what if you what if you can't spin anybody at all because of 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 the constraints of the the vehicle um could you still what 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 could you benefit from by by using lbnp by itself Huh. Now, okay, so we got we got um, some investigation in Earth-based studies. The the bed rest study uh, is is proving to be very valuable in in this field. Um, you talked about the complications of uh, a low Earth orbit, the vibration environment. Ah, station didn't quite get there, but but potential for commercial providers. Um, I know um, we've addressed this on this podcast actually. The uh, the five hazards of human spaceflight. Mm -hmm. One of them is is altered gravity fields. And so it, it comes to mind the idea that very soon um, we're looking to put humans, the first woman and next man on the moon, 
um, in, in a sustainable way, and we're going to get research through through a partial gravity environment. I'm I'm, I'm wondering, is there any benefit to uh, understanding how a human reacts to a partial gravity environment that maybe could be revealing uh, for artificial gravity. Absolutely. Oh, um, great. And, and vice versa. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, by looking at, we, we, we know that physiological systems don't just turn on and off. They have some kind of threshold. So, um, and, and, and you have your thresholds tested for hearing periodically, right? And, and they'll have a, a tone at a, certain, at a certain level and they'll make it louder and louder and, and, and it, if it gets to the, to the right level of loudness, you'll hear it and you push the button, right? So that there's a threshold in hearing, there's a threshold in almost all of our systems. Hmm. And the question for um, what we could do on the moon um, is, you know, is the is the one six g of the moon uh, above the threshold for many of the physiological for any uh, or or many of the physiologic systems? So if you're on the moon for a long enough period of time, say six weeks uh, or eight weeks, um, do you find that um, that you don't need any uh, that you don't have any uh, any continuing loss of bone or muscle that you would expect it to stop immediately? But you know. Does the exercise in the, in the presence of that G uh, level help with the loading across the whole body, and is it above threshold? Uh, uh, if it is, then we have a pretty good uh, idea that when you get the 3HG on, the, on, on Mars, that's also going to be above threshold. So it tells us a lot about what kinds of countermeasures we might need to send to Mars if we can find that on the moon. Um, so um, from a biological standpoint, the, the, the basic physiologists and biologists really want to know where those thresholds are. Um, and we're, we're looking at some of those in rodent centrifuge on the station right now because you can, you can spin rodents for long periods of time at a lot of different G levels, and you can look at, 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 at whether there are thresholds in those systems and whether you can identify them. Um, uh, we can't do that right now with humans, but if we had, if we had a centrifuge that we could use humans on, then we could, we could do some spins on a vehicle periodically at Mars G, uh, for instance, and be able to get some prediction of what kinds of protection we'll get from Mars G alone without all the rest of the stuff we'd have to send to be able to protect the crew members on Mars. Um, you know, so I think there's a, there's a lot of potential there, um, both ways. The centrifuge can help us understand the thresholds, um, but also being on the planetary surface can help us, uh, again, with, with humans in, 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 in the line of fire. Bill, this is such a fascinating um, topic, artificial gravity. I wonder, uh, you know, there's there's already, you know, it's, it sounds like, you know, artificial gravity is just, you, you see the astronauts in, in zero gravity on the International Space Station. You're not used to it, but it sounds like there's there's so much we're already looking at, and there's so much to look forward to. You got the bed rest studies. Um, there's a lot of curiosity when it comes to to Artemis missions. Um, I'm I'm curious, what excites you? Um, continuing with this field, you said you've been in this field for a very long time. Um, what's exciting you about the future when it comes to understanding artificial gravity? I think that I, I think getting artificial gravity in space is the is 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 the the key from my perspective mm -hmm. um you know the the things we're talking about doing on the lunar surface um to be able to get at least a single point uh, on that curve um but if we could do more with humans in space and, and actually we're just getting ready to start um these experiments with the with the rodents uh, and the mm -hmm. japanese where we can start looking at thresholds uh, on in zero g you know, we had a, 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 an opportunity at the very beginning of station to fly something called the centrifuge accommodation mo module. It was a very large rodent centrifuge 
um, that was going to be um, connected to the module and for some reason budget or something else it got canceled right at the very beginning if we had had that we would know so much today uh, about the thresholds about um, in at least in small animals um, about you know their thresholds and about interactions amongst the the the, uh, uh, the, the, the various systems and we could be doing these intermittent studies with with rodents uh, on station could have been doing them for 20 years um, but that that went by the wayside so um, we're trying to catch up and, and everything that we can do in space gives us a whole new picture on what happens can we interfere with adaptation in a positive way um, and and uh, and keep that adaptation from continuing along those directions and we know there's there's lots of uh, ways we can change adaptation on earth um, um, by going to the gym for instance you know if you spend a lot of time in the gym you build up muscles um, you, you get you, you end up if you're dieting correctly then you'll you'll end up losing fat mass and get yourself in in better shape and if you stop doing that then the adaptation continues you know to, toward the toward what the norm is we know we can do that the question is how well can we do it in space with the systems that we're most concerned about protecting for when they get to mars and there's nobody there to help them so those those questions about how can we do this and and of course i've always been fascinated from the beginning with multi-system studies where you're you're, you're looking because you look at one study uh, by itself something else is going on that you're not aware of mm -hmm. and until you get all the right people that are talking about their system and what the impacts could be on their system then you're not going to do it right and this you know the station offers us an opportunity to do multi-system studies with uh, with international people with a lot of smart people um, tied together so um, that's that's what excites me and, you know I've, I've, I've kind of moved to the management side over the last seven or eight years and uh, i'm not doing my own research but i help to drive the directions of research and 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 help to uh to, to set the stage so we can do those things and that's the thing that's most exciting to me about ag research these days or what the possibilities are unbelievable there's just so there's so much and it's so widespread i think maybe than than people realize it's not uh, artificial gravity is just not like a small in-house thing, right? There is a there is an international community bringing to, uh, together so many different fields, looking at all the different systems, as you're saying, uh, trying to get a good understanding of this, and uh, and there's a lot to look forward to. Bill Pulaski, I really appreciate your time coming on. This has been such a cool topic to talk about today, artificial gravity. I really appreciate you coming on today. Well, thanks a lot for giving me the opportunity. It's always fun to talk about things that you love. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really fascinating conversation we had with Dr. Bill Pulaski today. I really hope that you learned something. Uh, this podcast is available at nasa.gov slash podcasts, as well as a variety of other podcasts we have all across NASA at different space, um, space centers across the U.S., uh, we here on Houston, we have a podcast, have a series called Mars Monthly, where we're uh, putting out Mars-related episodes on a human mission to Mars on the first Fridays of every month. Consider this a bonus episode, right? Uh, artificial gravity, a lot of the things that we're understanding about it are Earth-based studies, but it's very applicable, applicable uh, to a mission to Mars. You can check out this and other uh, episodes of this series, Mars Monthly, at uh, nasa.gov slash johnson slash hwhap, as in Houston, we have a podcast, slash mars-episodes. Or just uh, search... Houston, we have a podcast, Mars Episodes. I bet you it'll come up. 
Uh, you can check us out on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have a question for us, use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or a question for the show. And just make sure to mention it's for us. At Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on December 7th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Michelle Rucker, and Jenny Turner. Thanks again to Dr. Bill Pulaski for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of the show. We'll be back next week.